Gabriella Balcom won the right to have a novel published by Clarendon House Publishing when one of her stories was voted best in the anthology in which it appeared. Her book, On the Wings of Ideas, came out following this. What's your favorite genre? Fantasy? Horror? Sci-fi? Romance? Literary fiction? This multi-genre collection of short stories includes all of that and more and has something for everyone. Gabriella's stories will alternately move you and bring you to tears, captivate or horrify you, and have you on the edge of your seat. Don't miss out. Be sure to get a copy today. All her life, Joan placed herself into the hands of men who failed her. Joan does the unthinkable for a woman in 1960, leaving her small town of Gainesfield. As an accomplished musician, Joan served her country in the first ever women's Air Force band, San Antonio, Texas. She unwittingly becomes part of a brainwashing experiment. After her Air Force service, returning to society is particularly hard for Joan, so much so that she has spent a good deal of her life in a mental institution. As a patient in a VA hospital, Joan is found murdered. Small-town secrets, whispers behind closed doors, stolen records, serve to solve the mystery of what the hell happened to Joan. This book is a work of fiction, but very well could have happened. Gabriella Balcom's thrilling sci-fi novella, The Return. The world doesn't know about the compound hidden underground and the wealthy investors funding it want things to stay that way. Although it's the year 2027, most of the facility's research is illegal. If animal rights activists had an inkling of what went on, they'd clamor for justice. Human rights activists would scream from the rooftops. By the time 2030 arrives, Researchers have worked for a while with feline service units and human replicas, HRs, who are virtual prisoners with no rights. More and more of them are dying and they long for freedom. Surprisingly, one of the top scientists isn't happy with the status quo either. Tensions are mounting and things are not as they appear. And now, enjoy this free JZO Modcast show. Carry on our way, well, son. There'll be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry. Don't you cry. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 80. Yeah, you heard that. 80. 80 of Lupa's Bits. I am your host as always, Lupa. So, episode 80. Wow. And no housekeeping because, you know, what would an episode be if I was actually ready? You know, if I actually had housekeeping available and ready, it would be like having COO. See? That's an O. 
U, V, E, I. Ah, okay. <laughs> COVID. <laughs> That's my housekeeping. Um, my housekeeper had COVID. <laughs> he uh, spent a wonderful week here with me, healthy, healthy and happy as, as, you know, a clam. And then went home and got sick. Now, I have taken two tests. I am negative. My mom is negative. So he got it somewhere between me dropping him off at the airport and him getting to the house. So we're thinking he got it on the plane. I don't know. Maybe he was licking the windows. Who knows? I don't know what he does when I can't see him. Anyway, so, yes, he had COVID, and he is actually still recuperating. Um, it takes a lot out of you, you know? Like, watching it firsthand, like seeing somebody actually going through it. And, I mean, it, it's basically been like a bad cold, where he's done a lot of sleeping, too. And it makes me think, you know, how much worse would it have possibly could it have been without his shots? Just, yeah. Not that I'm taking a, a side in the whole argument. Don't think that I'm I'm being political here because I'm not. Um, and Tamara, I swear if you tag me in one more thing, you and I are going to have words. I'm just putting that out there. But, yeah, like how much worse could it have possibly been? Um... Luckily, the kids have all been okay, uh, and he's bounced back. He had it fairly mild. <laughs> I know my brother-in-law was down, I mean, down and out for um, five days at least, but two days he couldn't even get out of bed. He couldn't even think straight. But uh, I think the most that Dave has had, I mean, he slept like three days. <laughs> he was up every now and again, but... Like, for the first two days, it was very hard to keep him conscious. Um, especially since we were on the phone. So it was like, you know, I'm watching the phone getting closer and closer and closer and closer to his face. I'm like, oh, okay, dude, you need to hang up or that's going to hurt. <laughs> You're going to drop the phone. It's going to smack you in the forehead. It's going to hurt. And then it'd be like 12 hours. I wouldn't hear from him. So we made, the first couple of days, we made, he made a, uh, we made a deal. Every time he got up to pee or he opened his eyeballs to take a drink of something, he would text me and just, I'm alive. And then he'd go back to sleep just so that he could check in so that I would know whereabouts, how sick he was because nobody was there to look after him. So I, I was doing the best I could from, you know, a five days drive away. <laughs> Like a pretty good nurse. I don't know how many states there are between... Well, I'm on the other coast. He's on one coast. I'm pretty much on the other coast. So I'm on the other side of the country. I'm actually farther away from him in Florida than I am if I was at home. But uh, he's much better. And our magazine launched on time-ish. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be on time. 
yeah, you'll wake up on, you'll wake up Friday morning and it'll be there, or Thursday, Thursday morning, it'll be there. Is it Thursday? It's Thursday? I don't know. I don't even know what date it is. It's February. That's all I know. <laughs> it's February. It's the month of love. <laughs> I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of Valentine's Day. Um, mainly because I've never really had a good one. Most of my earlier remembrances of Valentine's Day when I was in high school and, you know, you first start dating and you're all excited because, you know, you've got a boyfriend and, you know, they're supposed to buy you flowers and they're supposed to buy you chocolates and they're supposed to, you know, get you a card. And if you've been dating for a while, that's usually the first time they tell you they love you and it's like all so sweet and lovely. And it was usually wrapped up with a happy birthday to you. So, yeah, I would get a little, you know drugstore box of chocolates or a little bag of cinnamon hearts. Ugh, hate those things. And um, happy birthday, happy Valentine's Day. Because my birthday is two days before Valentine's Day. So it was always, a, I, I mean, I don't fully understand how the poor kids that have birthdays right by Christmas feel, but my birthday was right around a holiday where you get stuff too, so... You know, it was never, it was never special. It was never just Valentine's Day. It was, oh, it's your birthday. Happy birthday. Oh, by the way, you know, happy Valentine's Day. So I don't like it. Um, I generally celebrate it. Whatever. I bought my mom uh, sunflowers this year for Valentine's Day. I went to the grocery store and did the grocery shopping and there were sunflowers there and... If you've listened to any of my podcasts, you know the story of the sunflower finding it growing in out of the cement, basically, at the hospital the week my dad was dying. And it, that sunflower lived the entire week. So sunflowers are kind of important to my... Well, not kind of. They're very important to my family. And when we go to my dad's tree, somebody always brings a sunflower and we leave a sunflower at my dad's tree. So, yeah, I bought her sunflowers. Made her cry. It was great. <laughs> um, so, I had, I did a TikTok um, a while ago, venting, and I had put out the question there, you know, like, anybody have any advice, any suggestions? Now, it was for the reason why I was venting, but... One of my followers had put up the suggestion of doing a podcast on what inspires me to write, where I get my inspiration from, what drives me, why I write. So we're not going to get all emotional and weepy and cry. We're not going to get all ranty this week. I'm going to share with you my writing story. Um, some of you may have heard it before. I'll try and, and make it as new and as fresh and as interesting as possible. Um, but I'm going to get more into the um, cerebral side of it. Why I write, what inspires me to write, where I get ideas and how I develop characters and worlds as opposed to the history of my writing. That's been 
hashed and rehashed and triple hashed and, and corned beef hashed enough. So <laughs> I'm not going to do that. If you want to do that, go and find the interviews, go and find the, the podcasts where I talk about how it all began. I think I was four or five years old about when it all began. Um, inspiration for me. Now, I'll start off with where I get the inspiration for my stories. The very first book, okay, the very, very, very first story I wrote was back in high school. And it was about a rock band because I was a singer back then. And I actually had a singing voice. I could sing. <laughs> now, mind you, there are still people, small, short people, but there are still people out in the world today that like my, the way I sing, that ask me to sing. Yes, I am related to some of them, but some of them I'm not. Some, some of them I'm not. You know, they ask me to sing. Well, they don't ask, they demand. Lupa, sing. But anyway. Um, back in high school, I could sing. I was in a band. I played drums. And so I wrote a story about a rock band that basically sells their soul for fame and fortune. I know. Typical success rock band story. And then how it's all about the fight to find the this little Chinese person that... Um, helps them get their soul back and the battle for their souls and all of that. And then, you know, the lessons that they learn, it was a moral story. You know, the moral of this story is don't sell your soul for fame and fortune, put in the hard work. So that was the very, very first short story that I wrote. Um, and I, I loved it, but I mean, I had created all the characters, I had created the names, and I thought, okay, that's it, I'm done. I was a one-trick pony. Did it for class, handed it in, I got, I think, like a, a B-plus on it, or an A-minus, something like that. Same grade, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I went back to writing my poetry. Poetry was, was what I knew. Poetry... And even to this day, poetry still comes to me as easy as breathing. Um, I can, you could, like, give me a topic, I'll write a poem about it. Might not be a great poem, but I'll write a poem. Not all my poems are amazing, um, but they, it comes very easily to me to write poetry. And I didn't study iambic pentameter, I didn't, whatever, rhythm, whatever. I just write the words down. And a lot of times when poetry hits me, it's like this rush out of nowhere. And it's a frenzied, almost blind need to get the words out of my head onto the paper. And then once they're out of my head and onto the paper, I'm done. That poem's finished. I move on. I don't change it. I don't modify it. Half the time, I don't even really go back and read it. <laughs> just move on. Um, so I, like I said, when I, when I wrote this story in high school, the inspiration came from my life. I was in a band. Everybody wanted to be in a band. Everybody wants to be a rock star when you're in high school. 
I mean, come on, especially in the 80s. Everybody wanted to be a rock star in the 80s. Big hair, tight pants. Why not? Um, so I wrote what I knew. And then life kind of took some zigzags and there were some wrong turns. And I didn't want to write that stuff. And I, I moved in with my aunt and my uncle when I was 16, I think. 15 or 16. I think I was 16. Yeah, I was 16 when I moved in with my aunt and my uncle. And I started writing then, again, writing another book. I'd always had this, this desire to write a book. And I wish I could remember the story that I was working on. Um, but for the life of me, nope, I, I can't remember it at all. I was writing it on an old electric, the, the fir one of the first computerized typewriters where you could either set it to where you would type and it would like automatically, like it would type it right on the paper right away, or it had this little screen and you could type it in and then read it on the screen and hit and like hit the the enter button and it would type it all out the whole sentence i thought that was the coolest and i would create all these stories and i would create all these worlds and i would sit now my aunt lived right in downtown toronto so where her townhouse was i could see queen street now most of you American listeners won't know Toronto, won't know Queen Street, but think downtown LA, think like the, the good eighties shops. There was, um, a, a music store. Like I could see the music store from my bedroom window. And it was like one of the music stores where Alice Cooper got his guitars and um, the drummer for Def Leppard got his, his sticks. And when they were in town, it was the music store that would supply the picks and the, the instruments that they needed. If they broke strings, that's where they would go. Steve's Music Land, that's it. I <laughs> knew they would come to me eventually. Steve's Music World. And it, they, they would go and get their strings there and they would, you know, it was the place to go. And right across from Steve's was the um, Cabana Club, I think it was called. And it was one of the hottest jazz and blues clubs in Toronto. It was this little hole in the wall. The outside of it looked like a tiki hut. It was all decorated up like a tiki hut. I'm being suddenly I'm um, my story has has turned to be very interesting to my live studio audience, probably because it's one he hasn't heard before. Anyway, so just up from Steve's was Stitches and that I don't know if you had Stitches, if you have had Stitches in the States in the 80s, but I'm pretty sure you probably had a store similar to it that sold the suede jackets with the leather jackets with the fringe and you know the leather purses with the fringe all the girls had them in the 80s 
It had my favorite leather jacket with, you know, had the really tight little waist with the snap buttons and then it would poofed out over the chest and the arms and then it got tight again going down the arms from about the elbow to the wrist. Had fringe all along the back and all down the sleeves and it was like a dusty rose kind of color. So pretty. And it was hanging in the window and if I like smushed my face up against the glass of my bedroom window because my bedroom was at the front of the townhouse. If I smushed my face up against the glass, my right cheek like smushed up against the glass and I like turned my eyes as far as I could to the left, I could just see the jacket in the window. <laughs> what? What does this have to do with my writing? I'm getting there. Anyway, that section of Queen Street every night and like usually on a Thursday to a like Saturday night just came alive. And in the summer, like in the warmer months, I would open the window and I could hear the music coming from the blues and the jazz club. I could hear the people, the life on the street. And I would create stories. I would make up stories about what was going on. You'd hear some, hey, yo, you'd hear somebody shouting. And I would create this whole scenario, like he's hollering at his friends and, you know, they're going to the club and they're, you know, stuff, life. And I would write about it and I would create these stories in my head about what was going on outside my bedroom window. And that's where I would draw the inspiration for the stories that I was writing then was the life on the street outside, the people, the, the electricity that you could feel. And I would put that into words and I would walk. A lot of times I was supposed to be going to school <laughs> and where I went to school, I lived in downtown Toronto and I went to school in, uh, what was it? Index South. So it was Mississauga South, the South end of Mississauga. So I had to take the streetcar from the, the Queen Street streetcar from where my aunt's was to the subway station, then take the subway to, from subway station, go to Union Station, then take the GO train to Mississauga, and then walk for 20 minutes to get to the school. I'm not a morning person, so some days I didn't want to do all that. So I would ride the subway from one end to the other, and then I would switch directions. Like I would get off and I would go the other way. I would take the J line. And I would just ride the subway and I would watch the people and I would take notes and I would listen, pretend I wasn't listening, but I would listen to conversations. I'm really, really good, at least back then I was, I was really good at conversation hopping. I could tune into um, conversations, like they could be three or four seats behind me and I could focus and tune into their conversation and hear what they were talking about. And then I would make up these big scenarios in my head of what their life was like. And, you know, they were on the run and, and, you know, they were in hiding and they had no money and no place to go. And, you know, people were coming to kill them. <laughs> and, you know, I'd watch people getting on and off the subway and be like, you know, that's an undercover spy and he's you know, chasing this couple and, you know, just make out all these scenarios. Or I would just walk. I would walk Queen Street. I would walk it all the way down to university. And I would watch the people and the life and create stories 
And where my aunt's was, it wasn't that far from much music. Now, I know in the States you had MTV. Well, we in Canada, we had much music. And there's a big, huge building, and that's where all the stars, the music stars would come for interviews and stuff. I worked there for a summer. Like a month and a half. It was so cool. I got to bring Aerosmith coffee. It was great. <laughs> Steve Tyler, I got to hand him his coffee. I almost spilled it all over him because I was shaking like a leaf. But, you know, I handed him a coffee. It was pretty cool. Anyway, I got to see Alice Cooper. It was He was doing his trash tour. And he was doing an interview in the back lot, the parking lot of um, Much Music. And you could see it from Queen Street. And they had this big, huge, like, 12-foot fence. And there was a group of us, like, a whole bunch of us standing. And it, I would have thought there would have been more people. But I guess because where it was, they, nobody thought, oh, that's got to be Alice Cooper. It just looked like a garbage truck. And he was sitting on the back of the garbage truck doing the interview because it was for his album Trash. It was great. So, you know, I would take everything that I would see, everything that I would feel, and I would write it when I got home. I would put it into a story and I would get it all out onto paper. And I was taking my inspiration from everything around me. The, what I could feel, the sounds, the smells, the the voices, the conversations, and using that as inspiration. And then, again, life happened. I had babies, I got married, I grew up. And you tend to put, what does the song say, put childish things away. And for me, writing was something I did as a young person. Now I'm an adult. I've got to put that away. I've got to get on with my life. You know, I've got to be a mom. I've got to be a wife. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I've got to work. Do adult things. Writing is not an adult thing. You know, some adults do it, yes, and they do it very well. But I didn't think I was that good. So I had to do other things. But I would always make up little skits and little stories and little plays. I ran a daycare for a couple of years and we would always do um, little plays. We'd put on little plays. We would do little skits and stuff, play acting. We would do dress up. Um, I would make up little stories and little games for them, um, treasure hunts, stuff like that. And I would do the same thing with my nephews. And it was always that active act of creating, of using imagination to create nothing, something out of nothing. It was basic storytelling. And then um, I think it was, I'd always kind of still wrote my poetry, scribbled things down on paper because my poetry, I think, and it just kind of, you know, had an epiphany while I'm sitting here talking to you. Um, I think my poetry was that creative side of me bubbling up and bursting out every once in a while. Like, I was trying to shut off that side of me, tamp down that part of me, put it away, 
and that crazed frenzy of when a poem would come on would be that creative side going, excuse me, hello, we're still here. We're going to vomit this poem out of your head onto this paper and remind you that you're a writer. You might think you're a bookkeeper. You might pretend to be a house cleaner, but you're a writer. <laughs> We're just going to remind you. And then it would go away. So I would write these poems. And I think it was about 2002. I started writing um, Eternally Bound. It was about 2001, 2001, 2002. I started writing Eternally Bound. And I think at that time in my life, I needed a sweep you off your feet, get your heart pounding, your blood racing love story. And I couldn't find it. <laughs> It wasn't present in my life. Um, life was present in my life. Everyday mundane life was present in my life. And I needed the fantasy. I needed the escapism of a good, juicy romance. So I wrote it. And I mean, I, I was reading a lot of of um, Nora Roberts at the time. I was reading a lot of Danielle Steele because that was my mom's favorite author. So she would give me all of these Danielle Steele books and I'm reading them going, ugh, what is wrong with these women? Where Where is their backbone? I mean, come on. <laughs> Where's their, their personality? And I'm not knocking Danielle Steele. She's got some great books, and I really love her stories. Um, but it wasn't my kind of female heroine. And I'm very much into the paranormal. I'm very much into magical realism. I love reading stuff like that. Fantasy. I love all of that. And I couldn't find one story that incorporated everything that I loved. So I didn't draw inspiration for Eternally Bound from my outside world. Because my outside world was pretty blah. My marriage at that time was extremely rocky. I was suffering from severe postpartum. I had a two-year-old and I was running a daycare with a whole bunch of other two-year-olds. And if anybody's had a two-year-old, especially a stubborn, red-headed two-year-old, y'all know what I'm talking about. Now i got a room full of two-year-olds. And my life was in the toilet, basically. I had no ambition. I had no... I was just, ah. And I needed an escape. And I couldn't find an escape in the books I was reading. It wasn't taking me there. So I decided one cold, rainy 
November night. And if you've read the book, you know that first paragraph, it starts on a cold, rainy November night. I started writing Eternally Bound. I started creating the world I wanted to live in, the, the relationship I wanted to have. And I drew inspiration from my wants and my needs instead of the world around me. And I, I did model a lot of the characters, male and female, in the book after different aspects of myself. And it was kind of, it was very therapeutic for me working through and writing this book. Um, I created some amazing friendships. I had some amazing relationships through this book. And then I put it away. I wrote nine chapters. I went off. I lived a life, another life. I came back and I put it away. Now, some of the things that I had experienced, some of the choices that I had made, I took with me when I came back and I still incorporated them. I still um, went to gatherings. I still pursued freedom. Let's just put it that way. I still pursued freedom. And at these gatherings that I would go to on Saturday night, there would be um, what they called Bardic Circle. Now, if you're a writer, if you're an artist, you know what a bard is. And that's what Bardic Circle was. The storytellers, the writers, the musicians, the singers, the actors, the dancers, we all got together and we all presented the best we had to a panel of judges and everybody else in the audience watching. Now, I was really shy back then. <laughs> if you've seen me at PCE or at Scarefair doing the cosplay contest, you go, yeah, right, okay, you shy? I don't think so. But, oh, yeah, oh, I, I'm still shy. Not as shy, I pushed through it. But back then, I was, like, shrinking violet in the corner, okay? And I had a dedicated little following of friends that loved my poetry and that would encourage me. So I would take the poem, a poem, that I thought was good or one that, you know, I was inspired to write while I was there. And I would go and I would stand up in front of the 200 people in the audience observing and the six judges and shake like a leaf and very meekly <laughs> read my poem as quickly as I possibly could. Pray to God none of my friends would heckle me because that would be the end of me. I would... I have to have the earth open up, swallow me whole, and that would be, I'd be done with it. And then I would toddle off. And one of my friends, Dana, she 
absolutely was my biggest, biggest fan of my poetry. She always encouraged me with my poetry. She, she was my muse on many of occasion for my poetry. Um, she was the inspiration for a lot of my poetry. I always called her my muse. We would have conversations two, three, four o'clock in the morning because neither one of us could sleep. So we would be up and we would be having coffee and we would be talking. And we would have these really intellectually deep, spiritually deep conversations. And it would inspire me to write a poem. And when she was diagnosed with leukemia and she was dying, um, it reminded me of one of the first instances of when I, I had met my sister Crystal and Dana and Andy kind of marched me over to the little enclave where they camped and Diva was there sitting on her throne as she does and they sat me down in the chair right in front of her. Crystal, this is Lupa. You need to meet her. And then they left. Now, like I said, I was meek, I was mild, I was shy, I was intimidated, and didn't have much of a backbone. Um, the two and a half years that I had spent away, that backbone had kind of been broken. <laughs> so there wasn't much of a backbone to speak of to begin with, and then having it yanked out of my spine through my self-respect, um, I didn't have any of a back. So she scared the hell out of me. And Dana just patted me on the shoulder, kissed me on the top of the head. And she said, just be you. She'll love you. You'll be fine. And she flitted away like a little butterfly. Not five minutes later, this butterfly came and landed on my shirt and sat there the entire time I talked to Crystal. The entire time. I was there for like two hours talking to her and this butterfly just sat on my shirt, you know, gently moved its little wings. And then when it flew away, Crystal looked at me and she said, okay, we're done. And I got up and ran. <laughs> now, Crystal and I have been friends ever since. Um, but that, when, when Dana was dying of leukemia, that is one of the first moments that popped into my head. And... Dana has always been my butterfly flitting in and out of my life and flitting in and out of situations. And I used that as the inspiration for fly, butterfly, fly. So again, drawing inspiration from life. And again, still the shy, not liking to step outside of my little comfort zone. She made me read the story at her, that, that poem at her funeral. I'm not quite sure I have forgiven her for that yet, but her and I'll have a conversation one day <laughs> when I see her again. So I started at that moment, I started drawing inspiration, still for, still writing poetry. I refused to go back to my book. I refused to write stories. I had put that away, but I needed to write. I realized I needed 
to write. As much as I needed to breathe, I needed to write. I needed to create with words. And I would read my poetry to my grandfather. And I was always jealous of my grandfather and my aunt and my mom and my son for their ability to draw, to paint, to create these beautiful pictures. And my grandfather said, and it settled my mind because I was not putting much stock in my writing because poetry came so easily to me. I didn't figure it was that good. And he read my poetry once and he said to me, you know, I paint with oils and with I draw with pastels. You paint with words. And it still sticks with me. I paint with words. I create pictures with words. And that kind of stuck with me. So I kept writing my poetry. I created a poetry book for them, um, which my mom is going to pull out because my publisher happened to be here the week for my birthday and mentioned, you know, if I pulled all my poetry together, there might be a book deal. So my mother, <laughs> my mother did the squee from the couch. She said, I know where a lot of it is. And I do believe my aunt told him the same thing. Oh, I have one too. Because <laughs> that's what I did. I created poetry books for my family members. Because I didn't have any money. So I would make a poetry book and decorate all the cover all up and everything. And then give that as a gift. So there are two poetry books out there with my poetry in it. My, with my grandmother's and my aunt's. But I always, I just continued to write poetry and kept writing poetry. And that seemed to appease my need to write for a while. And then one day, uh, about five years ago, <laughs> six years ago, maybe, I was cleaning and organizing and I came across those nine chapters that I had tucked away. And I read them and went, damn, that's kind of good. So I sent them to my mom and she read them and she went, more. So I sent them to my aunt and she read them and she went, more. And I went, oh crap. Okay, well, I have all of these notes of events that need to happen in this story. Okay, let's write them. That's the story right there. And I was still taking the inspiration for this story from the fantasy that I had originally needed when I started it back in 2002. Well, we're now looking at 2015, 2016, something like that. So I'm not the same person that I was when I started it. So I had to shift. I couldn't get into that same mindset. So what I did was I sat down and I started over. And I must have wrote those first nine chapters a hundred times. And all I was doing was copying what was already written, trying to get back into the story. It wasn't working. 
I needed to find the inspiration again. And what I tell a lot of, of budding writers that come to me, and I'm not saying I'm like this, you know, majorly experienced writer and blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm just a writer who's written stuff. So when I have writers come to me that are just starting out and they're like, I want to write a book. I'm like, okay, fine. Write a book. And they ask, well, where do you get inspiration from? You can take it from anywhere. Anywhere. It could be a TV show. It could be a book you've read. It could be a conversation you've had with somebody. It can be your own life experiences. It can be somebody else's life experiences. You can take them from anywhere. You can make them up. The emotions that you use are your own. You can't write somebody else's emotion because you can't put that feeling into those words unless you've felt it yourself. I will tell you that flat out. I don't care what anybody else says. You can't write heartbreak unless you've experienced it. You can put all the right words together, but it's not going to have that feeling. And if you've read it, you know. There's a feeling to words. Gravitas. Gravitas, thank you. <laughs> That's the word. <laughs> it won't have that. It won't have it. I could sit here and I could write a story about an astronaut going to the moon. And I could make you believe that you're in that cockpit and you're going to the moon. And I could describe what the G-force feels like pulling back on your body as you're breaking through the ozone and out into... But they're going to be just words because I don't know what that feels like. I can tell you what a G-force on a roller coaster feels like. Or the Gravitron. Because I went on that recently, remembered, and didn't throw up. <laughs> The last time I was on a Gravitron, I threw up. I was also very drunk. But that's not part of the story today. Anyway, um, but I've never done it, so it's going to have a hollow feel to it. Now, I'm not saying that people write about, people who write about serial killers and killing people and all of that, know what it feels like. But everybody has had those imaginative thoughts. They all have somebody in their life that they want to plunge a knife into just once. Just to see what it would feel like. And if they would shut up. <laughs> I know I do. I would never do it. But I have imagined it enough times. And that's the neat thing about being a writer is you can kill off all the people you don't like. And you can do it in colorful, creative ways and it's perfectly legal. Perfectly legal. I have killed off parts of myself. In Eternally Bound, there is a character. Her name is Abby. And everybody who has read the book, she is the character you love to hate. Because there is so much about her to hate. I took every awful part of me that I did not like and put that into Abby. 
And when I killed her, my beta reader went, no, that wasn't good enough because I had made her so loathsome <laughs> that when I killed her the first time, it wasn't good enough. So I had to kill her again after she was already dead. That was fun. Anyway, so I needed to, when I went back to the story, I needed to change it enough to reflect who I was now. The inspiration that I needed to find was now, not then. Because I had put that part of me away. I was no longer that girl. I was this woman. So I had to change the characters enough. The storyline never changed. The characters changed to reflect where I was drawing my inspiration from. And Lance <laughs> is a culmination of several people. It started out as one person. And that one person is still very prominent throughout Lance's character. But there were other people that I took bits and pieces from to create him as a whole. Me, there was more than enough of me to go around to make enough, like make several characters. I am Mrs. Elderson. I am Gwen. I am Abby. I am Kira. Sorry, Kiara. Kira's my granddaughter. Um, I am the healer. I am the warrior. I am all of those different parts of me. Parts I want to be, parts I don't want to be. So I drew inspiration from my personality. And I finished the book. And it had everything in it that I wanted a romance story to have. It was historical. It had ships. It had pirates, sort of. It had romance. It had past lives. It had magic. It had ghosts. It had everything. And I was happy and I thought I was done. <clears throat> no. Because part of my contract stated that I had to write a short story every month for six months for the magazine that my publishing company owned. Well, shit. Because now I have to come up with some new stuff. So the very first thing, the very, very, very first story that was published in the World of Myth magazine was one that I had written as a one-off. It was just a short story. It was just this thought this vision that I had in my head, and I just wrote it. And there were several other bits and pieces that kind of went with this one. And there was some murmurings of it being a book about this woman who used to be a healer way back in some other time and she had been transported to modern day and there was a whole bunch of little little short stories all over the place and I couldn't figure out how to put them together cohesively. So I took the one that I had complete, Huntress, 
and I put that in the world of myth. There. Now I have a month to try and figure out what I'm going to do next. Because I had to write for six months. So I read it and went, all right, let's try from a guy's perspective. Let's write from a guy's perspective. And I had been watching this show, re-watching actually, Legend of the Seeker. And I loved it. Absolutely loved it. So I took aspects of the lead character of that show and went, okay, what if he was married? Had kids, had a family, lost everything. Hmm. And I wrote that. And then I went, well, what if he's a hero? I wrote that. Well, now I've got coward. I've got hero. I've got his perspective, his wife's perspective. Now let's write what actually happened. And as I reached the end of that thinking, okay, next month I have to come up with something completely different now because I'm finished with this. This is Merrick's story. It's done. There's three parts. It's finished. And as I'm reaching the end of battle, this is going to sound strange if you are not a writer. If you are a writer, you will understand the words I'm about to say. As I reached the end of battle and I'm writing the final few scenes, the huntress came up behind me and went, it's okay, I can take it from here. And I went, oh crap. <laughs> because now it has turned into a series. Because now the huntress has now been tied into Merrick's story. And from that point, the two of them carried on and the chosen was born. That's how the chosen was written. Once a month, well, not every month, but for the most part, once a month for two years, I wrote The Chosen. Actually, for more than two years, because I think there's like 25 chapters. Just over two years. Like 25, 26 chapters. Um, but some of the stuff didn't actually make it onto the world of myth. I think the last couple of chapters, there's stuff in there that I kept back. Anyway, that's besides the point. But I took inspiration for that book from one of my favorite TV shows. Old TV show. And if you read The Chosen and then you watch Legend of the Seeker, you'll go, oh, yeah. I do see the inspiration there. It's not anything similar to Legend of the Seeker. It was just the inspiration for, for The Chosen. So you can take inspiration from a TV show. And this is pure fantasy. There is magic. There is demons. There is bad guys. There is past. No, there's no past lives. Well, yes, well, kind of. Kind of. Kind of past life. I have this past life thing. It's a long story. I, it's, it's kind of a, a... I don't know if you would say it's an obsession of mine more as it is a fascination. Um... Because I don't think this is my first go-round. And I don't normally say that out loud. And I've had um, seers tell me this is not my first go-round. Anyway, it's that's a, a conversation for another time. But 
past lives, past connections, um, souls being connected over eons of time is kind of a theme that you'll find throughout my stories. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's a thing. Anyway. Um, again, taking inspiration from my own personal Rolodex. I work through, you can work through a lot of your emotional issues, a lot of your traumas through writing. You can use that. You don't have to write the actual trauma. You can create a situation where you're going to have the same kinds of emotions, anger, vengeance, fear, pain. You can use all of that and put it into a different situation and you can get it all out. So I use a lot of my own emotions that I've been through, my own pain that I've been through, my own situations that I've been through as um, reference points for when I'm writing a painful scene or I'm writing an emotional scene or hell, when I'm writing a good sex scene. You know, I draw from my own emotions. So you can use anything that's around you. You can use your imagination. A lot of writers will tell you, a lot of, of successful authors will tell you, write what you know. That works to a point. I don't know wizards and fantasy and dragons, and, but I will write about them because I know about big, scary things. So I can write about big, scary things and call it a dragon. I know what energy feels like because scientifically they have proven the human body radiates energy. I know what that feels like. I can feel it. So I can use that and write about magic using what I feel. Use what you know. Use any, any inspiration can come from anywhere. Go sit in the park. Close your eyes and just listen to the life around you. Ride the bus. Ride the bus. The best place for me to get in, in inspiration is re-watching old favorites. Especially if I'm writing a certain genre, I will watch that genre. Now, when I was writing Eternally Bound, because it was set in the 1800s, I was watching um, stuff like Poldark and uh, Black Sail. Um, I watched... There was another show. I can't remember the name of it. Um, but I was also watching um, things like the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, like the magic, the wizards, that kind of stuff. So it was like a combination of both. Um, right now, I'm, I'm writing a whole
horror book. And my inspiration for my main character is the fact that I am so bored with the vampire stories that are out there and the werewolf stories that are out there and the, because they're all the same. So my inspiration for Penance, for the creation of Reese, was that I wanted something new. I wanted to create a new monster. Now, she's not entirely new. She still has, you know, all of the vampire, werewolf, witch, gin, and phoenix attributes. But she's a new kind of werewolf, vampire, gin, witch, phoenix. So I wanted to create something new. And again, there is that... underlying long life connection love story still woven into the blood and the the, the sucking of the life and <laughs> the blood <laughs> it is a horror after all and it's starting to get a little bloody um, but again I took some of my inspiration for that piece from watching the originals because I love New Orleans vampires. I really, really do. Anne Rice knows how to write a New Orleans vampire. The originals knew how to portray New Orleans vampires. Now, mind you, the New Orleans vampires in the originals all have British accents. But, you know, they were Vikings. So. But what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to tell you about my writing journey is it has been more of a growing, learning, adjusting and expanding experience than it has been a linear road. It's not, I wrote this, then I wrote this, then I wrote this, then I wrote this. I have grown and changed and experienced to write this and write this and write this. And then gone back and had to rewrite things because I have taken too long to finish the story and have changed, so my character needed to change. So for me, I put a lot of myself into each character because as I'm writing, I see myself as that character. Whether it's I'm writing as Merrick, whether I'm writing as Marlin, whether I'm writing as Reese, or I'm writing as Gwen, or I'm in Abby's head, I become that character. Writer is just a nice word for multiple personality disorder. <laughs> when you think about it. I head hop very easily and I get into that character. So I draw inspiration from the those aspects of myself that are in that character. With Abby, the anger, the bitterness, the resentment, the violence. All when I, I drew on all of that and put that into her. The venom that she spewed. 
put it all into her. Gwen, struggling, just wanting to be happy, protecting her daughter, trying to survive, giving up thinking she was nothing more than just a woman. What more could she do? My helplessness, my hopelessness, I put into her. So you can take different facets of yourself and put them into each character. You don't have to put all of you in one character and model somebody else after a person that you know. Now, I do take characteristics and I do take expressions that people that I know say. Um, I do take situations that people have experienced, that I have witnessed, they have told me about, and put them in my stories. Be forewarned, you may end up in one of my books. If you piss me off, guaranteed you'll end up in one of my books and I will kill you in a lovely, bloody, graphic way. Um, so my journey has probably not been a typical journey of a writer that decides when they're young, yes, I'm going to be a writer and they take the classes and they do the work and they publish the stuff. And, you know, by the time they're 50, they've got a, a bookshelf full of books that they've written. I'm just starting my career. Yeah, I've been doing it for four years now. Professionally, I got my book published, my first book published four years ago. So I became a published author four years ago, five years ago, 2018 was when my book came out. I think it was 2018, four years. I don't know. I can't count. That's why I have you. <laughs> I don't do math. <laughs> you do math. Four years. Um, I'm just, I'm a baby author. I'm just starting at 50. But a lot of authors don't get started until later in life. Not all of us can be Stephen King. And uh, quite honestly, I've, I've seen interviews with that man. Uh, I've seen inside his head. I've watched his movies. I don't want to be Stephen King. I've seen his movies. Can you imagine what his nightmares are like? If he writes that stuff for fun, can you imagine what his nightmares are like? I mean, come on. Wes Craven. Good heavens. Clive Barker. Dean Koontz. No, thank you. <laughs> Not even. Mm -mm. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. So, my best advice would be to, yes, write what you know. But don't write it as... I cracked an egg on the bowl, put the egg in the pan, fried the egg. Because you know how to fry an egg. Draw the emotion from that experience. Draw the tactile feelings from that experience. The coldness of the egg in your hand. How it felt to crack it against the side of the bowl. The sizzle, the smell. Write those. Write the senses. 
not the situation. Use the senses of the situation to apply to whatever scene you're writing, whatever poem you're producing. Just write. And if you don't think you're any good, chances are you're probably pretty darn good. I haven't met a good writer yet that thinks they're good. Most of us think we suck. <laughs> that we're a hack and one day people are going to wake up and go, Who gave you a pen? Who told you you could write? Who lied to you like that? We all think that that's going to happen. If you meet a writer that says, Oh, I'm good. I know I'm good. I'm a great writer. Ten to one says their stuff is incredibly pretentious. Very wordy. And not worth the paper it's written on. Because a good writer continues to keep writing and keep improving and keep expanding and creating something better than the last thing that they created. If they think they're good, they stop creating anything better. So, yeah, that there's your... your um, what inspired me, where I get my inspiration, and how I got to where I am today <laughs> with a whole bunch of new stories that um, I hadn't told before. But I take life. I am an emotional train wreck on a good day. So I have a plethora of vile and intense emotions that I can draw on at any point in time. <laughs> so most of creative people are emotional train wrecks of some level. We are very intense people. Now, we're not intense to where, like, you know, we're staring into your soul when we look at you. No, not always. <laughs> not always. But we feel things very intensely, whether it's a good emotion or a bad emotion. If we have a bad day, it generally is a series of bad days. It's not just one bad day where you lay on the couch you put on your old ratty sweater, you eat a tub of ice cream, you watch a bunch of sad movies, you have a good cry, and you're fine the next day. No, 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 no. For us creative people, when we have a bad day, we sleep for 18 hours for about five days until somebody says, hey, excuse me, um, you need to get up and get back to life because there's things that need to get done. And suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> And the thing is, is a non-creative can say that to you and you'd be like, you can go. There's the door. Please don't let it hit you in the ass on the way out and don't come back. If another writer were to say that to me when I am in the middle of a funk, I'd be like, all right, okay, fine. Because I know I've said the exact same thing to that writer. I have told them, get up off the floor, go wash a nasty ass, change your clothes, put your hat on, go get a coffee, and let's get down to work. 
<laughs> you know what I mean. But they've told me the same thing. Albeit a whole lot nicer. But one creative to another creative, we can do that because we understand how deep we can go. We understand how high we can go. When I get into a writing frenzy, I have a very, 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 very wonderful sister, Crystal. And I, I have to make a point of telling her. And she, not, she does it not only for me, she does it for our other writer friend, Alex, too. And we have made a promise to her. We will tell her, I'm going into a writing session. And Crystal, okay. And Crystal will set her watch or her, her clock or whatever. She'll watch the time. And about every three hours, I'll get a message. Drink something. Around dinner time, eat something. In the evening, if I'm still writing, in the evening, drink something else. Go pee. <laughs> Stand up, stretch. Now, I will admit, when I was writing in Midland, when I would get stuck, I would get up, I would go out on my back deck, and I would have a cigarette, and I would stare at the maple tree. And I would just look at the branches and I would trace the branches with my eyes. And in the summer and in the spring, I would watch the leaves move and the sun kind of wink its way through each leaf as it would come down. And I would put the problem that I was having with the writing at the back of my head. And I would focus on that tree. And within 10 minutes, whatever problem I was having, whatever spot I was stuck would be worked out. And I would go back inside and the frenzy would begin again and I would continue writing. I do miss that tree. I do miss that spot because I haven't found that spot in my new place yet because I live in an apartment building. So it's not like I can just step outside and breathe. But I will find that spot in my apartment. Um, I have a big, huge open space and I have a carpet and I have actually paced that carpet on numerous occasions working out emotional difficulties um there's actually like a path starting to be worn it has seen some heavy emotions that carpet so that is a spot that I pace when I'm working out personal stuff. So I think it's going to be become my writing spot as well. When I'm, when I'm trying to work out something is I'm going to pace that carpet back and forth. I pace it when I'm talking on the phone. I pace it when I'm being accused of things I'm not doing and I'm having a mental bawling breakdown and I'm yelling at somebody on the phone. <laughs> I pace that carpet back and forth. Um, so I think that's going to be my spot. But nature helps me. Being outside helps me. 
I can't write outside because it pulls at my attention and I just get lost in my head staring at a tree or watching the water flow down the river. So I have to be inside <laughs> to write where I'm not distracted by the beauty of nature. But if I'm working on a problem, I need to be in the beauty of nature to help work out that problem and then I can go back inside and write. So you need to find your spots. You need to find your, your, your safe spots, your quiet spots, your thinking spots. And they're not all going to be the same spot. They might be, but they're not all going to be the same spot. When I'm actively writing, when I'm actively working on a book, every night when I get into bed, I create a dream. Now, I don't know if anybody else can do this, but I can create my own dreams. And I think about the scene I was just working on and I see it playing out in my head where I want it to go next. And I fall asleep with that in my head and I dream it. And then I get up the next day and go, that's perfect. Or what was I thinking? Or, oh, I don't remember any of it. Oh no. But I remember the feelings. And sometimes that's what I need to remember is the emotions, is the feelings, is whatever that is to put into what I'm writing. So that's one of my little tricks is I will put myself to sleep thinking about where the story needs to go next, but not thinking about, okay, so I need to write this. I need to write. No, I will just put my characters. It's almost like I'm sitting in the director's chair going and action. And I just let them go. And I just watch. I just watch what they do. And then I take notes and write it all down the next day. <laughs> so I don't, not if we don't all write the same. We don't all sit down at a desk, at our computer, pound out six chapters and call it a day. I wish. Um, some nights it's three o'clock in the morning and I can't sleep and it's like, okay, well, Let's pull out the laptop. Let's pound out a few paragraphs. And I do. Sometimes it's 10 o'clock in the morning or one in the afternoon. I have to be in the mindset. Now I can put myself into the mindset with a little bit of work. I have playlists that I use and I have shows that I can watch that will put me in that mindset. Unfortunately, the originals ended. I finished all of the episodes of the originals. So now I'm trying to find something to replace it so I can continue writing penance. I may have to restart the original. Actually, I'm watching Vampire Diaries now, but I'm at the season where the original vampires showed up. So it's kind of helping. <laughs> it really helped this week. It was great. When, when the magazine comes out, well, it's already out. By the time this podcast comes out, the magazine will already be out. There's a wonderful new installment to penance. Can't wait to see what Jenna has to say about this piece. Because I think she's been waiting for this to happen as much as everybody else who's reading it has been waiting for this to happen. Anyway, I think I'm going to kind of wrap this up now um, because my throat's getting sore and it's quarter after three in the morning. Pretty sure my live studio audience wants to go to bed. <laughs> but my inspiration comes from my life experiences it also comes from my hopes, my wants, my needs, and my desires, and my wishes, my fantasies. 
I use a lot of my fantasies in my writing. So inspiration can come from anywhere. And I take it from everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. And I acknowledge now that my poetry, although it may feel like it comes easy to me, it's because I'm a writer. I can put words together. And poetry is what started me as a writer. And poetry is what kept me as a writer, even when I wasn't writing. I was still writing poetry. It was my creativeness bubbling up and coming out in whatever form it could. So poetry is kind of always going to be special to me. And I need to get back to writing it. I haven't written anything new in a while. But, yeah. So that's kind of where I got my start was poetry. Grade 10 English class poetry. Mr. Phillips. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's my writing story and, and uh, advice and a little peek into the writer's side of me, not the emotional train wreck. So <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> I didn't cry. I didn't rant. I was fairly sane for most of it. So, all right. I am going to wrap this up. If you want to come and find me, I'm all over Facebook. Lupa. Just Lupa Barty. Come find me. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, um, TikTok. There is a Lupa's Bits, the pod, the, actually it's called Lupa's Bits, the TikTok. Um, apparently I am not on Roku Spotify though. <laughs> That's a tale and a half. Oh my gosh. It was like, what, an hour? Just because it was Spotify and our, my podcast comes out on Spotify and I had to, it was a vanity thing. I had to search myself see if I could find myself. And of course, you know, vanity never pays off and I was sorely disappointed. But that's another story for another podcast. All right, everybody. Um, have a good week. If you are in the climbs of Ontario, stay warm. And if you're not, then, well, stay real. That's all I got for you this week. <laughs> okay, everybody. Have a good week and I will talk to you all next week. See ya. There'll be peace when you are done Lay your weary head to rest Don't you cry, Don't you cry.